0: Again, welcome to Freedom, and to those of you who are tuning in online, welcome to Freedom Online. We are so honored that you would take the time to join in, whether it's live or catching this later on in archived form. Thank you for joining us. I'm really glad that you're here today. Uh, We're beginning not just a new series, but I really feel like the Lord's moving us into a new phase of what He's saying and doing among us today, and uh, it's going to center around a section of Genesis that if you've been doing the, the daily readings, the church-wide readings that we do, you've just plowed through this, so it's going to be familiar territory as we look together at the life of Abraham. If you want to be turning there in your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis 11 and 12 today. I want to begin with a question, and I want you to just take a moment to consider it, but when you think about your expectations, what is your greatest hope or dream For what God will do in you or through you to impact the world around you, the circle of of influence around you? What is the greatest hope or dream of how God would work in you or through you? And let me ask a second related question. When you think about Freedom Church, what is your greatest, biggest hope and dream for how God would work in us, and through us to impact the world. The writer George Bernard Shaw quipped, if other planets are inhabited, they must be using Earth as their insane asylum. And if you live for very long, you understand why he says that. The world can be a crazy place. Life can be very crazy, and the truth of the matter is life and the world are bound to be crazy until God steps in and brings order and peace and justice. It's just going to be that way. That apart from the kingdom of God, apart from the righteous rule and influence of God, it is more like an insane asylum than than a sane world. But every time God goes to... About bringing order and real change for the better, he always begins that process through one person. He always picks a man or a woman and he begins to birth in them a picture, a vision of how things could be different, of how things could be and should be, and how things can be completely shifted and reoriented with God at the center, and with kingdom values embraced. And every great movement begins with a woman or a man that God plants that inside of them. It begins with a dream. And that's what we want to talk about. Not just today, but for the next couple of months in the series that's entitled, It Starts With Just One. And it always does. Every great move of God starts with just one person. As a beginning point for what we're going to look at in the Scriptures, we're going to read from Genesis 11 and 12 briefly, but I want to begin with a passage from Isaiah 51 where the Lord speaks to us in the opening two verses. You don't have to turn there. It's in your outline. The Lord says this, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. I hope that's us. That's us, isn't it? You who pursue righteousness, you who are seeking the Lord. He says, okay, you guys in the church, listen up. Look to the rock from which you were cut. Who is that? What's the rock that we were cut from? He spells it out. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah. When I called him, he was only one. Everybody say only one. He was only one. I blessed him and made him many. That is a simple summary of the birth of a movement that starts in the heart and mind of God. God sees the chaos, the insanity of how we live, and he doesn't get depressed. He looks at it and he smiles and says, I can change that. I can redeem that. I can make something beautiful out of that. And then he chooses somebody. He picks a woman. He picks a man. And he begins to birth in them a picture of how this needs to be. And then he takes one and he makes them many. And he ushers in change. He ushers in revival. He ushers in renewal. He says, those of you who want to honor me, those of you who really seek righteousness, who seek me, I want you to remember the rock from which you were cut. I want you to remember the example of the one who is the father of the faith, and his name is Abraham. There is a lot to be learned from Abraham. Where we look in the Scripture today, and and I'll I'll go ahead and tell you, today's message is going to be a little bit different uh, from a typical sermon in some respects. My preparation this week has been different. I usually spend, obviously, most of my time in the Word, and I'll confess I probably spent as much or more time studying outside of Scripture a particular story as I did in the Scripture, because early on the Holy Spirit so strongly impressed on me a story, a true story that I'm supposed to share with you today that really is very much a picture of what God is saying to us and so really today's message is going to be two stories. It's going to be, we're, we're just going to scratch the surface on Abraham's story, and then I'm going to tell you what I think is probably the most extraordinary story that I know. And I think it, it's important that God wants us to hear this story because he's speaking the word over Freedom Church today. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, particularly as you go from Genesis 3 to 11, is just a picture of craziness spiraling into utter chaos. It is. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 is a picture of God creating the world, and it was good. It was what he wanted it to be. And in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, and from Genesis 3 moving forward, it just goes from murder to pride to chaos, the flood. I mean, it's just a wild, sad story that covers a couple of thousand years. And the first real turning point, which winds up being one of the two or three most important chapters in all of the Old Testament, comes in Genesis 12. And the turning point is this. God picked one man and said, I choose you. I'm going to work through you to change the world. And his name was Abram. Now, just so we don't get tied up on this, their original names are Abram and Sarai. God changes their names over time to become Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to do what the later writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament did, and I'm not going to go back and forth. I'm going to do like them, but we're just going to call them by the names that God gave them. So when we read Abram and Sarah, you know who we're talking about the same people. We're going to begin in Genesis 11:27, where we go from the chaos and the who begat whom to where we pick up in verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah is the father of Abraham. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishka. Now, Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his granddaughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. All I really care for you to remember out of that is that this is the beginning point of God picking out one family, one individual through whom he's going to begin a new work that's going to impact over history, the entire planet. And it's Abram, and he calls him from, we'll get into in just a minute exactly where, from a a part of the Middle East that's far over toward uh, what is today Kuwait. And he calls him to leave this region and to go to a different part of the world that he's going to give to him, and he makes all these promises to him. And so... Abram and his wife and his nephew and his dad set out to go to the place that God called them to. And they stop part of the way there. They take this big arching route to get to the Holy Land. And they stop in a place that's kind of on the what's today the Syria-Turkey border. And they stay there until Dad dies. And then they move on to where God sent them. Now when we pick up in chapter 12, we're not moving forward in time. We're rewinding Getting an explanation of what that looked like, what God actually said when he called them out. So chapter 12, we've just rewound to when they're in Ur and God speaks. Verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, go to your country, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. That's a cool thought, that God looks at us, and he wants to do great things in us, but among those great things that he wants to do is that he wants to do what he did with Abraham. I want to make you a blessing. I bless you to be a blessing. He spells out what that's going to look like. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We're going to go back next week, and we're going to unpack those three verses, and really get a a look at what God is promising and what his heart is for the world. Verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. We're only going to scratch the surface. We're only going to begin this story because we're going to spend two whole months looking at the life of Abraham. But what I want you to focus on with me today is the realization that God consistently does a really weird thing in choosing the most unlikely people to accomplish the grandest of things. It's his specialty. He does it all the time. In fact, he virtually never chooses the people that we would choose. Because, I mean, think about it. We, we would choose people who are powerful people who have resources, people who have gifts, people who are, are you know, great speakers or singers or leaders or whatever, and God picks out the most unlikely folks in the crowd and says, that's who I would love to use. And that's what we're going to focus on today is the beginning point, the kind of people, the unlikely people that God loves to use. And I just want to begin by pointing out what an unlikely hero Abraham really is. I'm not going to take time to really dive into any of these three, but just on the surface of it. Three apparent strikes against Abraham. See if you don't agree with this as you consider this with me. First of all, Abraham was from a pagan idol-worshipping region, which means he has no great spiritual pedigree. There's nothing but pagans where he's from. He is from Ur of the Chaldeans. It is If you look at a map today, it's 225 miles southeast of Baghdad, where that southeastern corner of Iraq is, touches Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, that's where Ur of the Chaldeans was. And it's kind of peculiar. It's one of the richest places in the world today because of oil. It was one of the richest places in the world back then, and they didn't care about oil. I don't know what made them so wealthy back then, but it was, it was just wealth and pagan idol worship. And it wasn't like, oh, but Abraham's being a good Christian in the middle of this pagan culture. The the truth of the matter is, and it's the second point that I gave you there, is Abraham likely had no prior knowledge of the one true God whatsoever. To put it another way, he was a pagan living in a pagan land. It's a, a good reminder of the testimony that we heard here a month ago. How many of you were here the first Sunday of the year when our sister... Esther got up and shared her story. Is it not mind-blowing how in her story, this woman living in the middle of a Muslim land, she's a practicing Muslim, she is a committed Muslim, and Jesus shows up in her dreams and singles her out and calls her to do a work that's having a huge impact. Not because she had gone out and done something great for him, not because she was faithfully serving the Lord. God just said, I pick you. And we go, why? Why? Good luck figuring that out because he's God and he can. God did that with Abraham. Pagan land, no pedigree, pagan man, no knowledge of God. And the Lord just shows up. When Stephen is speaking in Genesis 7 about Abraham and his example, he says, our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran, and God told him... Leave your native land and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. It's a pretty clear picture that God just showed up and made himself known. I mean, that's one of the stories I want to hear when we get to heaven. What in the world happened? Was it in a dream? Did an angel come? What happened when God just arrived in your life and said, Hello, the the little idols that you've been worshiping, they're just stone. They're just wood. I am the true God. You need to know me and make me known. I'm fixing to do something big through you but you're going to have to leave what's familiar. You're going to have to leave your home, your land, and your family and go to a place you've never seen before because I'm about to do something totally new. It's going to blow your mind and it's going to change the world. And I pick you. And that's not all. There's a third strike, it seems like to me. Abraham was growing old. When the story starts... Don't get offended. He was 75. He was growing old. I didn't say he was old, but he was. I mean, this is not doggy years. I know sometimes we read the early parts of Genesis and it's like, how does that whole thing work out? People were not living 900 years when Abraham came along. We're post-flood here, so people aren't living a thousand years at a time. And he's 75 years old. Can we just get really honest with each other? I mean, 75 is looking younger and younger to me now that I'm in my 50s. I plan to be doing a lot when I'm 75. But honestly, I mean, most of us think you get to be 75, you're thinking about... Okay, I want to do some traveling, play some golf, want to just hang out at the beach or the house or whatever. But we're usually kind of thinking, it's time to wind this down. It's time to sort of pull back some. And God's going, Abraham, I pick you, and I pick you to rev it up right now. We're just fixing to launch this thing. Abraham's 75 years old. We typically think... When we've gotten past sort of the retirement years of our 60s, it's like, yeah, God's probably pretty much done what he's going to do with my life. And God's looking around going, don't you think that? You have no idea how much I'm about to do through you. And we hadn't even got started yet at 75. Would you agree with me? A pagan with no spiritual knowledge or pedigree, who's 75 years old, does not look like a likely candidate to bring, out, bring about change that's going to impact the whole world. Anybody else agree with that? Who would pick this guy? God. God loves to pick people that we would say, I don't know what you'd ever accomplish through them, and say, I'll change the world through that man or woman. That's how unlikely he was. But there were at least two things that made all the difference. The first one is this. God chose and called Abraham to start a movement that would change the world. The key operative words in this, God chose Abraham. We don't like this part because we don't control this part. Would you agree with that? I mean, we, we love to think that we control far more than we do. It's kind of crazy how much Some of us are control freaks, and yes, I'm in the middle of that pack. We want to dream up the great things that we're going to do for God. But let me ask you this. Have you ever in your own life just dreamed up something big that you were going to do for God or been a part of somebody else's dream of something that they cooked up that they were going to do great for God to change the world? I've been there, and it never works out well. When we figure out something that came from here and here that we're going to do for God, it usually goes, whoo! Those of you that are old enough, you remember when Evil Knievel was going to jump the Snake River Canyon? It was going to be incredible. Y'all remember what that looked like? His rocket barely made it off the ramp before it just dove straight to the bottom of the canyon. Every time I dream up something great I'm going to do for God, it looks like Evil Knievel going off that, that ramp. Because the great things that happen in the world start in the heart and mind of God. Blackaby got it right in the whole experience in God study. Find out where God is at work. Find out what God is planning to do and join Him in what He's doing. God planned to make Himself known to raise up a family of people that would become a nation of people through whom He would bring salvation to all the nations. That was his plan. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to let you be front and center. I'm going to let you be the leading edge of that. Everything about Abraham looked unlikely, but the thing that makes all the difference is God chose to involve Abraham in what God was doing. I've got good news for you. God fully intends to involve you in something really significant that he's planning on doing. Whether you recognize that or not, whether you believe that or not, he's going to. I don't get to define for you what that is, but I can tell you it's a fact. God doesn't call us to be observers or spectators. God God chose Abraham to start a movement that's going to change the world. And it starts with those instructions. Leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family Go to the land that I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. And here's the key line. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's a pretty spectacular promise, isn't it? We'll just leave our fingers right there and come back to that next week. The second critical piece is, even when he didn't understand, Abraham did what God said. Wouldn't you have about 50 questions at this point? A God you've never heard of before shows up and says, I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be famous. I'm going to put protection over you. People who bless you, they're going to get blessed. People who curse you, they're going to answer to me. I'm going to make a whole nation out of you, and I'm going to bless every people group on the planet through you and your family i got a lot of questions, especially when God's instruction begins with, "But you've got to leave your land, you've got to leave your house, you've got to leave your family, and you've got to go to a place you've never even visited. You're not going to get to Google it. You're not going to get to go down to the bookstore and pull out Froders or whoever's you know, book on what to do while you're in Canaan. Not going to get to do that. You're just going to travel to a place you've never seen. I got questions to that. Abram basically said load up and giddy up we're leaving the story of Abraham it's the story of God working to, to save the world but from a human perspective it is a story of faithful obedience I mean if you want to sum up the life of Abraham in two words those are the words faithful obedience saying yes sir I will, even when it doesn't make sense. When you don't even know why you're doing what you're doing, but you know that God said to do it. Now, I want to take some time to share another story with you. We're going to spend a lot of time unpacking Abraham's story, but as I said, there was another story that I just felt like out of the clear blue, God just, just deposited on my plate to share with you today. And it is the story of William Seymour and the Azusa Street Revival. Now, I'm not saying this to to shame anybody, but by a show of hands, how many of you walking in the door this morning, if you don't Google it, and somebody said, tell me about William Seymour, tell me what you know about him. How many of you could share more than three sentences about William Seymour? Let me see your hands. That's exactly what I expected. And like I said... I'm not talking down to you at all. I didn't expect you to know anything about this guy. This is the telling thing. He is an unknown figure to most Christians. He was a nobody. And yet God worked through him in such a profound way that the largest movement of Christianity on the globe today was birthed through him and the little church that he shepherded. I want to tell you his story. William Seymour was an African-American born the second child of eight to emancipated slaves in Centerville, Louisiana in 1870. It's five years since the Civil War has ended. His mom and his dad had only in recent years ever experienced freedom in their lives. And if you just remember what that period of history was like, he was growing up in abject poverty in Louisiana in the 1870s. We know very little about his early life. Because he's just lived on the backside of nowhere in total poverty. I mean, it's kind of like Abraham, you know, write me a book report on the first 75 years of Abraham's life. Well, that won't take a single page because we don't know anything about it. He was a nobody. Well, so was William Seymour. We do know that in 1905, at the age of 34, he was serving as an interim pastor of a little church in Topeka, Kansas. Interim means he isn't the pastor. He's the fill-in. And at some point in the course of that year, he had been moved by the, um, the example and the teaching of uh, a well-known leader at the time named Charles Parham, who had a Bible college in Houston. And so he, in 1905, Seymour left Kansas and he went to Houston hoping to find a place that he could minister there and hoping that he could find a way to get to study under Parham. Well, Parham was a white man and well-known, pretty, pretty famous guy who headed this Bible college. And you have to bear in mind, this was in the middle of the Jim Crow era, and so all the segregation laws dictated that in things like education, white people and black people couldn't even learn together. So Seymour went to Mr. Parham and said, you know, I, I I want to learn, I want to do ministry, I want to learn under you and be a part of your school. And he said, well, you can come and learn, but you can't sit in the same room with the white students. But I'll let you get a chair, and you can sit it in the hallway outside the door, and you can listen in on as much as you can hear from the hallway. So he said okay to that. And for the next months, he did that, and he preached where he could on Sundays. And we would say, as fate would have it, but reality is, as God would design it, On a Sunday at the beginning of February 1906, a woman from central Los Angeles by the name of Neely Terry, she's a nobody, I mean she's just just an ordinary person, she had attended a little bitty holiness church right in the heart of Los Angeles. And she came to visit family in Houston. And as the Lord would have it, she went to the church that Seymour was preaching in that Sunday, and she heard him deliver a message on the Holy Spirit. And he preached on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to operate with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, we live in an era where things have changed so much, in large part as a result of the story that I'm telling you today, where that, that would seem like a very familiar message, but it was a radical message 115 years ago. She was really moved by that, really touched by that. So when she returned home, to Los Angeles in the next few days she went immediately to her pastor a woman by the name of Julia Hutchins and she made a strong appeal and said look this guy William Seymour that I met in Houston when I was visiting my family there is something about him there's something about his character and the message that he delivered that I feel is very important and I really feel like our church should invite him to come out and speak as a guest preacher and Miss Hutchins was open to that. The truth of the matter is she was wanting to leave and move to India as a missionary. And so this seemed like an opportunity to test the waters maybe with Seymour. So they immediately sent word that they would like to have him travel out and preach in this tiny little holiness church in the middle of Los Angeles. And so William Seymour agreed, and chug, 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 he traveled out to Los Angeles. And he was supposed to speak for four straight Sundays in this little bitty his church. So he comes the last Sunday of February, 1906, and uh, preaches his first message, and it's basically a variation of the same message that Neely Terry had heard him preach in Houston on the, the, experiencing the inner work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit operating in that power. And another week passed, and he came back to preach his second sermon. And he got to the church, and there was nobody there, and the building was padlocked shut. That's got to be a little discouraging for the guest preacher. And he's like, What's up with this? He was called in and told, that message that you preached last Sunday will not fly. Out of fear that she couldn't shut him down, she locked him out of the church, the pastor did, and canceled church for the day so that he could not continue to share this dangerous, contagious message about the work of the Holy Spirit. She went to the denominational leadership for Southern California for the Holiness Churches and reported his teaching to them. They called him in and raked him over the coals and asked him all kinds of theological questions. And when they were done with him, they told him two things. They told him that he was stripped of the title of being able to be a pastor to anyone and that he was to never again preach this message about the Holy Spirit being filled with the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Here's kind of a funny thing about that, though. The man who presided over the meeting, who pronounced these things, you can't be a pastor anymore and you can't preach this message anymore. Part of what they were offended by, and it's part of what to me is just beautiful about this story, is William Seymour was completely honest every time he talked about this during these early years, that what he was sharing about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be specific. One of the things that he talked about was how what he read in Scripture led him to the conclusion that speaking in tongues was the evidence that you had just experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that speaking in tongues should accompany that. And I'll be up front in saying there's part of his theology that I don't agree with, but you can't argue with how God ended up so profoundly using him. Well, Part of what's so touching about his honesty is, as he would preach this, he would say to the people, this is what God wants to do, this is what God has for us, but I've never experienced it in my own life. And so when he's called before this board, they were they were just destroying him over this, and part of it is, you're preaching something that not only isn't true, it's never even happened in your life. And so they stripped him, and they were about to send him out, but the guy who led the meeting pulled him aside and said, hey man, you can't preach this anymore, but if it does happen to you, Come back and tell me about it. I want to know about it. so he thinks he's done in Los Angeles, but a man in the in that little hole in this church, I guess he was touched by the one sermon that he did hear and found out what was going on. he reached out to William Seymour before he left town and said, "Hey, why don't you just come stay at our house? His name was Edward Lee, and Edward said, "You know I don't have a lot of room, but you're welcome to just invite people over if you want to teach or preach or have a prayer meeting or whatever. You can do that as much as you want to. And Seymour thought about it and said, that, that would be great. So he went to Edward Lee's house and at the beginning of March, he, he just began to meet with a group of 15 African Americans, 10 adults and 5 children. And they would just have prayer meetings. Sometimes he would teach. And they just started doing this on a daily basis. And after 2 or 3 weeks... Some more people started coming, and this wasn't a very big house, and they realized this isn't going to work very well in a house. And some neighbors who were a part of this, they had a house two blocks down the street. And they said, well, you know, we've got a nice size porch. You could just come and meet on our porch. So they said, all right, well, we'll just move the meetings two blocks away. We'll meet on the porch. And so they started doing that, and it was on that porch in March of 1906 that something unusual began to happen the Spirit of God really began to move in ways that people could sense and feel. And for the first time, white people started showing up. And it was no longer an African-American group. It was a mixed group of white and black coming together every day to seek the Lord, to worship, and listen to teaching. While that was going on, he's still preaching the same kinds of messages He's focused in on Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit and what that looks like. And he's still acknowledging, I don't think I've ever experienced this in my life, and I'm hungry for it. And nobody in the crowd had ever experienced what he was preaching on. They're praying, and they're seeking the Lord, and they enter into a 10-day fast. Three days into that 10-day fast, Edward Lee is the first one in the group here who experiences something that looks like what they've read about in Acts chapter 2. And pretty quickly over the coming days and weeks more people began to experience that and larger and larger crowds of white people and black people began to show up with the result that after just a few weeks they gathered for the next meeting and the whole porch collapsed. Caved in. Nobody died. Nobody was seriously injured. But the house was badly damaged and they realized this isn't going to work. It's not going to work to continue to destroy this house with crowds trying to meet on the porch. And so they started looking around, and they found a little building at 312 Azusa Street, right in the heart of Los Angeles. Now, it was a little white, old, clapboard building that was 40 feet wide and 60 feet long. It was a two-story building. The upstairs was divided into rooms. The downstairs was just one open 2,400-square-foot space. Now, let's put that into perspective That would be about two-thirds of this room. If you just took this space right here from this wall, not quite, back to that wall, and we chopped off about a third of the room over here, that was the downstairs space. But it had an eight-foot ceiling on it, so they couldn't put a platform in there. Originally, many, many years before when it was built, it had been an African Methodist Episcopal church but you sure can tell that anymore because since then it had been a bunch of different things. It had been a lumber warehouse and a um, tombstone shop and had uh, actually become just basically a, a barn. It, it was where they had kept horses, <laughs> which the people who worshipped in there for a long time to come were well aware of because swarms of flies were just drawn to it because all the, you know, the evidence of animals having been in there was still just lingered in the place. It was in the poorest part of town. But they could afford it because it was $8 a month rent for this old building on Azusa Street. So they they moved in there, moved their meetings over there, and uh, they, they didn't have money to purchase furnishings. So they would just stretch planks on empty nail kegs, and they, they would just create a rectangle around the center of the room. Like I said, there was no room for a platform. They didn't have a electron or anything. They took two big old empty shoeboxes and stacked one on top of another, and that was William Seymour's podium that he preached from for years. And that's where they had church. And the Spirit of God began to move even more powerfully as they started meeting in this dirty, hot, stale, fly infested building at three twelve Azusa Street. The Spirit of God was poured out. And suddenly what had become a white and black congregation, it started looking Asian and Hispanic and Native American and white and black. And almost overnight, anywhere from 300 to 1,500 people would try and pack themselves into a little space about two-thirds the size of this room. People began to experience supernatural healing as they would come to worship here. Gifts of the Spirit being manifest in the worship services. They began to have meetings starting in 1906 that would start in mid-morning, and there would be worship services and meetings from mid-morning until midnight, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, and that continued nonstop like that for the next three years. Now, we would expect in the 21st century, so they started a building campaign. They bought land and they built a great cathedral. No. This story is going to conclude for William Seymour's portion in it in the little building on Azusa Street. Little fellowship of people with thousands and thousands of visitors. The newspapers showed up mostly to make fun of it. A lot of people hated what they saw there, the different races coming together. Charles Parham, remember that name? The teacher, the head of the Bible college from Houston, he had had such a great influence on William Seymour. He was invited about six months into this. In October of 1906, he was invited to come in as a guest preacher. Seymour, I mean, as you can imagine, you're not going to preach seven days a week from 10 in the morning till midnight. So all kinds of other people are preaching, teaching, sharing. Parham was brought in in October. He saw what was going on. He saw that there was a major movement afoot, and he immediately wanted to be recognized as the person in charge who had started this movement. He hadn't had any part in it other than saying, you can sit your chair in the hallway outside of my classroom. But he immediately wanted to be given responsibility over the whole thing, and he immediately wanted to segregate it. He did not like that white people were worshiping with African Americans and Hispanics and Asians and Native Americans he He did not like that at all and when he met resistance to being recognized as the leader over the movement, he immediately appealed to the media he went to the newspapers to seek to have them publish that he was the leader of the movement. He got up to preach the first Sunday when he was there and because Seymour and the other leadership would not embrace the things that he was saying, he began that day to say to the congregation, and I quote, God is disgusted by what is going on in this revival. Seymour had to look at the man who had been his mentor in ministry and say, he literally actually had to lock him out. The same as was done to him six months before he had to do to parham to lock him out so that he could not come back and preach and say, I'm sorry, we're going to have to cut ties. If you want to come back in and preach segregation, we can't have any part of this. There really were three parts to the message that God was speaking through Seymour that really stood out at that time. The first was the work of the Holy Spirit. That was not commonly being preached, not in the Western church. And he hammered that all the time. The second part of the message that just stood out at that period in history was that the work of the Spirit would always result in unity so that there was no longer racial divide. Black and white, Asian, Hispanic, that we all are a part of the family of God and that there should be no division. And the third part of the message that rubbed so many people in the media and other places the wrong way was the empowerment of women. Remember, the women's suffrage movement had not gotten a ton of traction yet. Women did not even have the vote at this point. And Seymour was preaching a message that women... We're were equally able to serve as leaders and be used of God within the church. And so you can imagine how despised he was by so many people. And why those in authority said, you can't even be a pastor. Well, to try and give you some sense of the, the scope of the movement that was being birthed out of this, still just meeting in this little rundown building, But every day, countless people coming through these meetings, people traveling from across the country and other points on the globe to visit because they had heard about how the Spirit of God was moving there so powerfully. Within two and a half years, okay, this thing's just getting kicked off in March, April, May of 1906. Within two and a half years before the end of 1908, the movement, which... What's birthed out of this is what we know today as the modern Pentecostal movement. The, the modern Pentecostal and charismatic churches, almost all of the ones that we have any awareness of, came from this movement birthed on Azusa Street. Within the first two and a half years out of this tiny little fellowship, still meeting in this little building, churches and missions had been planted in every major city in the United States in every state in the Union and in 50 other countries within the first two and a half years. Can I say that again? Churches and missions had been planted in every American city, in every American state, and in 50 other countries in less than three years' time out of one little church, a fraction the size of this fellowship. Now, you want to hear something that's about as staggering as that? The actual core membership of the church through this entire revival, which lasted, the revival itself at Azusa Street lasted from 1906 to 1915. The core membership of that church never varied significantly from 50 to 60 people. Countless tens of thousands of visitors, some would come and stay for days, some for weeks, some for months, but the membership of the church remained 50 to 60 people, and out of that little fellowship, a movement is birthed with the result that here we are today, 114 years later, there are more than 500 million Christians today who are a part of that specific movement. It is the largest and fastest-growing segment of Christianity on planet Earth today. And it was birthed on Azusa Street, Los Angeles, through the leadership of a one-eyed, poorly educated African-American man who had been stripped of the title of pastor. Tell me God does not use the most unlikely people through whom to do the most world-changing things that we can imagine. But Azusa Street is not just a reminder of how God always starts with one man or one woman who begins to see a vision of what could be of things that they haven't yet experienced themselves. It's not just about what God did through William Seymour. It's also what God did through that little church. I don't have time today. I mean, the whole thing is just such an intriguing story. But it's interesting to note... That when the revival itself, and when I say the revival, I'm talking about what was specifically centered in L.A. and what was centered around the apostolic faith mission, the little church on Azusa Street. The crowds had departed by about 1915. After about nine years, the newspapers, the media coverage departed. The massive waves of people visiting from other states and other countries after about nine years had departed. And William Seymour didn't chase fame. As is evidenced by us today, he didn't earn fame. Hardly anybody today even knows who he is. He spent the remainder of his days faithfully shepherding 50 to 60 African Americans at 312 Azusa Street. He died in 1922. When he passed, his wife Jenny took his place as the pastor of that church. And she shepherded it from 1922 to 1931 When they lost the building. Now, I want to ask you just a candid question. From a very modern American human perspective, how would we evaluate the success of William Seymour, of his wife, and of the Apostolic Chapel there? Wouldn't we be tempted to look at that and go, oh, what a tragic story? They got such a good start, but then, you know, it kind of died down, and then they just had 50 or 60 people. After 25 years, they lost the building, and it was gone. It looked like it was going to be a great thing, but, you know, not much ever came of it. I mean, wouldn't it be tempting for us from an earthly perspective to feel like a promising start but a sad finish, and we couldn't be more wrong if that's our conclusion because what was birthed there was a movement of global proportions. Friends, I'm not exaggerating. I wish you'd go home and do the reading for yourself. Google it. Read about it. There is no movement on the planet. Here we are 114 years later. There is no Christian movement on the planet today as large in scope or as fast-growing as this movement. And I don't care how you feel about their theology. I don't agree with some of the finer points of the theology. But at the end of the day, we better get over it. I love the fact that God is bigger than that. Sometimes we don't get all the details right. And God says, but I love the fact that you're hungry for more. William Seymour, Edward Lee, all of you people who are just going, we don't know what it looks like. We don't even know what it's going to feel like, what it's going to be. But we want more. We want more of the Holy Spirit. We want more of this work that brings us together. It doesn't separate us. It pulls us together. It doesn't look and say, well, you're women. You're second class citizens. You're you're not white. You're, you're certainly not supposed to be in here. No, we want more of this Spirit who says, I've got power for you. And I've got love for you that causes you to look at people differently. And you can make a difference in the world. They said, we don't know how we get all of that. We don't know where it's going to take us, but we want it. And it always, always, always drove them to reach outward. The thing that I cannot get my head around is this little bitty fellowship that was a fraction the size of ours. I don't just mean in physical space. I mean, numerically, it was a fraction the size of who we are. That within those first three years, it had sent out Thousands of missionaries, thousands of career missionaries. I look at that and I go, "How do you do that? God's in the middle of it. It's like that there's no net gain if you if you're doing this. If you're going to be a part of this movement in 1906, if you're going to do this because you want to go to a great big church, we've got to have bigger buildings and bigger crowds and more seats because that tells the world that we have succeeded. If that's what you're about, skip it. You're going to be disappointed. Because God does not measure the effectiveness of a church by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. That's why I'm so thrilled that God has put his finger on us and said, how about we start with this little fellowship and let's just jump over here to Nigeria. Let's start touching the world. That's what God did over and over and over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times on Azusa Street. When people decided that they should love each other regardless of skin color and background, that serving jesus would be the greatest highest calling of their lives that wherever god might call them to go i start hearing echoes of of that rock from which we have been cut whose name is abraham that god would say you're going to have to leave what's familiar you're going to have to go to a place that i am yet going to show you but you won't believe the blessing that i'm going to make of you to the world but there's a price to be paid The end result isn't fame or glory. Oh, there is fame and glory for the name of Jesus. We are all about extending His fame, His name, His renown. And for a people who can get over needing to be successful, needing for our church to be successful, and just settle on the extension of, of Jesus getting glory, His name, His renown, His work, His mission, His heart for all the nations, there is no limit to what God will do through a man or a woman or a little fellowship of people who are just totally sold out to that. Who say, God, you can have my money, you can have my time, you can have my future, you can have my life, you do what you want to do. If you want to keep me planted right here and make me a part of that little fellowship that just keeps sending and keeps praying and just keeps shipping them out, then I'll do it. I'll give and I'll pray. And don't you think for a minute that that isn't the key part in this. People who were a part of this movement who would come to the services would often report not how powerful and moving and charismatic William Seymour was. You know how they would describe him very often? I never have read a description of him that said that his, that his words were eloquent or that, that there was such great power in, in how he spoke. But what I do read about is how many times people would come into services and, and he might just stand up and open the Bible And just let somebody else come up and read and testify and preach. And how he would spend the entire service then on his knees with his head shoved up in the top of those two shoeboxes. Because in a room where everybody's seated all the way around you, there's no private place. And that would be his prayer closet would be to stick his head in the top shoebox of his podium. And just spend the whole service in prayer there. The thing that I remember reading of other people giving their accounts of, of being there, you know, watching to see what he does, and just the line, there was no pride in this room. Just a man on his knees before the Lord, open to what God would do among his people. God chooses the most unlikely people and the most unlikely churches to bring maximum impact and maximum glory to himself. He did it through a simple life like that of William Seymour, and he did it through a simple person like Abraham. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Now remember what you were, my friends. It's like he's speaking to us today. Remember what you were when God called you. From the human point of view, few of you were wise or powerful or of high social standing. God purposely chose what the world considers nonsense In order to shame the wise, and he chose what the world considers weak in order to shame the powerful. He chose what the world looks down on and despises and thinks is nothing in order to destroy what the world thinks is important. God specializes in using nobodies. I'm so thrilled to consider what God wants to do in each one of our lives. 1 Corinthians, um, excuse me, Ephesians 3.20 says God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond everything that you can ask or imagine according to His Spirit whose power works in you. I began with a question. What is your greatest hope and your greatest dream for what God wants to do in and through your life and in and through Freedom Church? God wants to birth a vision in you and in us of what he wants to do. Will he find us to be a willing people? My prayer for us today, I mean this, is just that God would let today be a day that he just draws a line. A line in the heavenlies, a line in our hearts and our lives. That separates the way things have always been up until now. And that going forward, it's just a whole different era. That we go from our plans and our dreams and our goals to a time when we just recognize it's never been about those things. That it is about what God has planned that God has a calling. And it's so much greater. It's so much greater for us. It's so much greater for this church. And it doesn't matter that you don't know what that is. Abraham didn't have a clue what it was God that was going to do. He just knew God had shown up and that God had put his finger on him and said, I choose you. Will you go? And what mattered was that Abraham said, yes, sir. The moment that the line gets drawn is when you say, Wherever, whatever, however, the answer, sir, is yes. Would you join me as we go to him together in prayer? Jesus, you are just worthy. You're worthy of our love. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of everything that we could ever bring you and so much more. We want to be a people fully surrendered to you. Thank you for the calling that you place on our lives. Thank you for the calling that you place on Freedom Church. Lord, we want to see you bring revival here. We want to see you stir in our hearts. We don't want to wait for something else to happen that we get in on. We want you to start with us. Give us a heart that longs to see your spirit move. Give us a heart that loves others the way that you love them. Give us a love for the nations. we offer ourselves up to you today. Holy Spirit, we ask you come in and do a deep, deep work in us today. Change us by your power, we pray in Jesus' name.